Hello and thank you once again for tuning in to the Reptile Living Room. This specific segment is called Hurt Chat. Being that our special guest is Marsha McGinnis this week, uh, by no small chance, uh, she is also our sponsor for this month. Uh, you can check her out at goldengategeckos.com. Uh, she has the finest captive care uh, facility known for leopard geckos, African fat tails, of course the nefarious species, which she's speaking with us today about, as well as the uh, colionic species, which is a desert gecko. So, without further ado, here's Marsha McGinnis talking to us about the nefarious species and their captive care on Herp Chat. Okay, so we're on the phone tonight with uh, Marsha McGinnis. We're going to talk to her tonight about uh, the knobtail geckos, uh, specifically the three species that she's working with, which are the uh, rough tail, um, smooth tail, and then another, which doesn't have a common name, but it's pretty much known as the milli. Mm-hmm. Um, two of them are kept in semi-similar conditions, but a little bit different. And then the last one, the milli, is uh, basically the starter species. So I guess we'll start off with the milli. Um, okay. And talk about, you know, where did we come up with these Australian geckos in the first place? I guess would be the best place to start with these guys. Well, um, Australia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they're, uh, most people um, that are savvy in the business call, refer them to as, as Aussies, okay. you know, uh, Aussie geckos, which are, um, there's several different species, but the ones I work with are considered knobtail okay. species. And those are probably split into two main groups, which would be the smooth knobtails and the rough knobtails. Okay. And then most recently, the milli has been reintroduced as a knobtail after being reclassified recently again. So, oh, okay. So I work with three of those, the three, I, I work with smooth knobtails, which are the, uh, I work with Nefurus levis. Okay. And rough knobtails, which are actually ban- rough banded knobtails, uh, which are the Nefurus wheelerii. Okay. And then, of course, the Nefurus milli, which were formerly called Underwoodosaurus. Oh, okay. Milli. All right. And so those are the three species that I work with. Okay. Now, of course, they're from Australia, uh-huh. um, mostly from south, southern uh, and central uh, Australia. All right. Um, the milli are probably a little more um, in the coastal areas uh, where the other two species will um, kind of take a dip northward um, into this. Into, some of them are found in central, south-central Australia as well. Okay. Uh, we can't really get them um, imported anymore from Australia because Australia is very, very jealous about their natural, um, you know, um, uh, resources. And, and, of course, their animals are included in that. So right. I would say that the majority of the captive um, colonies or, uh, that we have um, here in the States and in Europe, mm-hmm. um, you know, arrived... Um, somewhere before there were, you know, sanctions. Uh, right, before about, all the sanctions um, took place and everybody got right. thrown out, no, you can't have our animals anymore. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now you so, said, um, um, go ahead. Now, you said you started off, or should have started off, I guess, in a couple of conversations we had uh, with the milli, but you actually went backwards. That- I did. Okay. I did. I went backwards. <laughs> okay. And if I had it to do over again, and I was, if I was to recommend um, people who are interested in, uh, you know, working with knobtail, right. Australian knobtail species, um, I would recommend starting out with the Nerfurus milli. Okay. 
they do they have two common names uh sick tail geckos and barking geckos oh okay so they're these poor guys have identity crisis they've been reclassified a couple of times in the last 20 years uh and now and they've got a couple of common names so <laughs> nice but trust me, these little guys don't have any identity problems. They know exactly who they are. Right. <laughs> and uh, and that's what counts, I guess. Yep. But I would say of the three species that I of knobtails that I work with, the milli are probably the most. Um, uh, they're the easiest. They're the, their care is the easiest. Their environmental needs are not quite as strict, mm-hmm. and their personalities are. They have a very calm demeanor, really. Oh, nice. Um, so they're very easy to handle and tame. Um, they do well in aggregate groups. In other words, they can be housed in, you know, in, in groups. You can, you know, some, some people call it gang, gang housing them. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like that, but... Or harem housing, however you Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, apparently in the wild, some of the research that I've done and people that I've talked to in Australia mm-hmm. um, have told me that when they're found, when they're found in the wild, um, they're found in, in like anywhere from, you know, semi-arid scrublands to even, you know, more coastal, um, a little more humid areas. Uh, living under debris and, and um, you know, uh, um, bark and, and whatnot. And they've even pulled bark off of trees, you know, that's half-hanging and found colonies of them well, uh, living down in there. Right. Now, that's the kind of thing that interested me, because actually finding these geckos in the trees, mm-hmm. not like in a dead tree, but like actually in, you know, <laughs> a fully functional standing tree, so now, when we were talking before, on <clears throat> previous occasions, you were talking about the structure of the the feet or claws or however you want to call it. Yeah, their digit structure is is, is, a, is quite a bit structure. different than than what we what we know of the more traditional um, uh, knobtail species. They're oh. a little more bird-like um, if you look at their structure of their feet uh-huh. uh, and their digit structure, which tells me that they're more arboreal. Um, than their cousins um, are. Right. Um, although I don't think that they are found in trees per se. Right. They're not like living up off the ground in colonies. No. And no. Like that, they they're, they, they are terrestrial creatures. Right. But I think that they're more adapted for climbing uh, in shrubs and yeah. you know small trees and and you know things like that. So okay. um, and that's demonstrated in their captive behavior as well. Okay. But when they're found in the wild, um, it's been claimed and noted that they've found these aggregate, uh, aggregate groups mm-hmm. uh, with multiple males and really? females and even um, juveniles all together, and they seem to um, cohabitate in the wild uh, fairly well. If they find them like that, then, huh. you know... Yeah. Now I haven't put that to the test in captive um, in my captive colonies. I haven't uh, housed um, multiple, multiple males. males okay. to, no, no. And and all my babies that are born, I do house them in in their pairs because uh, there's two eggs that are laid. Right. Um, you know, individually in pairs, I uh-huh. should say, until they reach a you know a weight or whatever that they can, you know, um, be introduced to a breeding colony. Right. 
okay. or group. But uh, but yeah. yeah, they're they're fairly easy. Um, now, you know, as far when as they're a captive care is concerned, like what size enclosure and you know what would be the materials that you would recommend for housing uh, deferous uh, milli? Well, um, of course, it, it depends on what your space re requirements are. I suppose if somebody wanted to have you know, large numbers of these animals. I, I keep the babies in rack systems um, and okay. in, uh, in their pair, in, the, in their, um, their sibling pairs in a six-quart uh, tubs okay. um, in, in a rack system. Uh -huh. uh, my adults, now I enjoy them, and I think that they actually get along pretty well in, uh, in col breeding colonies of one male to two or three females. Mm -hmm. I like to keep them in 20-gallon long um, aquarium-type um, vivariums. Oh, okay. Uh, so I can observe them because these guys aren't, they're not as secretive in, um, as the other knobtail species that we'll talk about in a little while. Right. Um, they're out a lot. They're, they're oh, out okay. more. They, yeah, they're not, they're not hiding all the time. And so I enjoy watching them and seeing them, and um, I try to set up their tank their tanks, um, you know, in, in, a, in what I would consider a little more naturalistic um, right. environment. Uh, and I keep the babies on the same substrate, and that is um, I use 50% uh, um, ultra-fine-grade ultra non-silica sand okay. uh, and 50% sifted peat moss okay. mixed together. <clears throat> And in the tubs with the babies, I keep probably about a half inch of substrate uh, down, and in the tanks, you know, an inch and a half to two inches okay. of substrate down. Now, are these guys big diggers at all? or They will dig, uh -huh. uh, but they're not as inclined to dig uh, as the, um, the other knobtail species, which would be the, excuse me, the smooth, smooth and the um, um, rough, rough knobtails, right? Okay. right. All right. Now, I think they like things to more, more to climb all over. That's what I was just about to ask you. What kind of decor do you uh, recommend in there? Well, okay. Um, first of all, I use the you know I use the twenty long tanks. They're the breeder tanks, so they're not very tall. I think they're only about nine inches tall with a screened yeah. lid. Uh huh. And I do keep an under I utilize a under tank heater. Okay. Um, that covers about twenty five to thirty percent of the uh, you know of of the bottom outside bottom of you know their enclosure. Right. Um, and I keep that a little cooler than most. They, they really cannot tolerate uh, super, uh, surface temperatures of more than about 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so they don't like it as, as hot and warm as, as some of the more, um, you know, what we would consider desert-dwelling, uh -huh. um, you know, knobtails. Right, okay. Um, I keep a large... Uh, hide, a rock-like cave hide over okay. the warm spot, and then I have a secondary cool hide that I try to keep moist um, on, the, on the ambient room temperature side. Okay. And then inside there, I've got driftwood, uh, uh, like cork bark tubes. Oh, yeah, okay. And things that, and, and then I use artificial um, succulent-type plants for decor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that they care as much as I do, but I think it looks pretty. Yeah, definitely. And they do utilize all of those spaces. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. So essentially we're looking at a colony of, of 1.2 to 1.3 in a 20 long. 
Okay. Uh, breeder tanks, green lead, with an undertank heater um, set at uh, a sur- surface temperature on the warmest spot at about 86 maximum. Okay. With about two inches, half uh, inch and a half to two inches of, of substrate, which is um, again, um, you know, ultra fine grade non-silica sand. Right. And I, I sift the peat moss, and I think it works better because I think they like a little bit more humidity. Um, than the other knobtail species do. Well, maybe not more humidity, but in a different way. Right, right. And they just seem to just just thrive, and, and they're very, very happy, and they're out, and I can observe them while I'm in there doing my, you know, gecko duties. And right, right. Now, so they're, they're pretty the, easy. What's the, uh, what's the dietary requirements? Are they vegetarian? Are they insectivores? Uh, they are insectivores, okay. and I like to feed a variety of foods for my um, insectivores. Right. Um, primarily with the with the milli, um, I feed uh, crickets. Okay. And um, I have a dubia roach colony, and they will eat the the dubia roaches. The downside of using the dubias is they will um, burrow in the substrate. Oh, okay. Where the crickets do not. Right. Right. So I feed appropriate uh, appropriate sized crickets, uh, meaning you know for about you know four week old crickets, um, you know which are uh, what are they about five eighths uh, inches, right. uh, up to maybe three quarters of an inch. Mm-hmm. Certainly nothing bigger than about three quarters of the size of the milli's head. Right. Um, and I feed the adults a couple of times a week, and I do dust their feeders. Mm-hmm. Um, with calcium, uh, just commercial um, reptile calcium powder. I do use vitamin D. Okay. And then about once a week or every 10 days or so, um, rather than putting the calcium um, on the crickets, uh, I use, um, uh, you know, the, the commercial reptile um, multivitamin Multivitamin, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, now, these guys will eat, they will um, utilize a water bowl. Oh, yeah, okay. So I do keep it down uh, for them, uh, fresh water. Now, um, on the water thing, because I've heard this back and forth with a lot of different species of lizard especially, do you have to put a dripper on it so it, the water actually moves ripples so they can actually figure no. out that it's water? Or no, they they'll, it's just, water a, and... just a static um, okay. you know, bowl of water is just fine. Okay, cool. Now, I would imagine that I don't see them drink very often, uh-huh. uh, but then again, they're nocturnal, and I don't stay up all night watching them, but um, they will lap the water from the water bowls. I would imagine in the wild that they utilize probably the biggest amount of their um, their um, hydration mm-hmm. comes from their food <clears throat> right. items, Right. and then I imagine they, they I've seen them lick uh, water droplets off of the walls of the you know, the tank, if I do mist, um, okay. you know, the, the cool side. And so I, I, I can see it in the wild that, the, you know, the, the water, the con, uh, condensation, especially in the coastal areas, would accumulate in certain areas, and then they would utilize that as a water source. Okay. Very nice. And so now, because they are nocturnal, because I've heard this, again, and this is a discussion I've heard over leopard geckos, why it still goes on today, I have no idea, but it still does. I see it all the time on forums of people convinced by, um, let's just say, pet shops <laughs> that leopard uh-huh. geckos need UVB light. They're not turned. No. <laughs> they, they don't no. see the sun. They don't care. Well, we got to keep in mind 
that um, any nocturnal species, right. um, their skin and especially eyes on many, um, especially um, you know geckos that don't have eyelids, right. uh, like the Australian geckos, um, their eyes and skin are not adapted to assimilate vitamin D or, or, or through you know through their skin from natural mm-hmm. sunlight. Gotcha. Okay. And overexposure to any UV rays, uh, if they don't have a place to escape from it, can can result in, in serious uh, burns. Injuries. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So yeah. yes, they 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 don't need any um, any. I don't use any light source. They just need to know if it's daytime or nighttime, just through the natural sun cycle through the window of my uh, reptile facility. Right. Exactly. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Now, uh, moving on to the, let's say the smooth tails. Is that the Levis, Nefers Levis? The smooth knobtails. There's Nefers Levis, uh, and there's several subspecies. I could go on. There's oh, at least a, uh, seven of them, right? Oh, no um, kidding. Yeah, yeah. And they are. Uh, they're all considered smooth knobtails. I work specifically with Levis Levis, oh, which okay. are the generic. You know, and actually, I think that. Um, Many years ago, when people were working with the Nefurus levis uh-huh. uh, species and subspecies, they didn't really realize that there were subspecies. They just thought they were kind of like localities or whatever, and there was a lot of um, hybridization going on, unintentional. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, since, you know, in the last 10, 15 years or so, actually it was Casey Lasik is one of the one of the first people here in the United States that really started doing some good research on on uh, the um, taxonomy or morphology, if you will, right. of the smooth knobtails, and as they've, they've discovered that there's, and there's a few of the subspecies that are still questionable on whether they're a locality or a uh, true subspecies. But I think there was okay. a lot of um, inbreeding going on with between the um, species. Uh, okay. Since then, I think people are a little more conscientious <laughs> about trying to um, maintain the the pure form. Purity, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's but like, I work with the Levis Levis, right? Yeah, and I was going to ask you. So what's like, what's the biggest thing that sticks out in your mind when you say, you know, this is the difference between Nefarious Levis Levis and Nefarious Milli? Well, first of all, um, looking looking at them, um, looking at their physical appearance. Okay. The Nefarious Levis or the smooth smooth knobtail uh-huh. uh, geckos have a uh, have a real knob at the end of their tail. Yeah, they got like a little, uh, it almost looks like a little bead. At the end yeah, of the a little ball at the end of their tail. And yeah, when they get really excited or in breeding, that little ball just kind of wiggles. And, and yeah. it's, it's still not really known why that's there, um, unless it's maybe a coddling effect um, yeah. to lure, you know, uh, food prey items. We, we, we really don't know. Huh. Um, but that's the biggest difference um, in visual uh, difference between, um, you know, the first thing that comes to your eye. Okay. Is that, the, um, that they have a, a, a true knob tail. Uh-huh. Um, okay. The other thing is that their, uh, their, their feet and their digit structure, again, um, we just discussed the... The, the digit structure of the um, milli. Right. Now, with, with, the, with, mm-hmm, with, the, with the smooth knobtails, their feet are a little more, their toes are shorter, and I don't want to call them webbed. Okay. But they, they could almost be considered webbed, which tells me that they, those, are, those are designed for digging. 
Yeah, for like sand work. Yeah, absolutely. Almost and like, uh, what's that one gecko called? Um, I want to say it's the fan-footed gecko or something like that. Oh, the Namibian, the ones, for, yes, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That are like specifically designed for cruising around desert dunes and stuff. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And and so if you were to really take a, you know, that would be the second uh, most uh, defining factor physically okay. between the two species um, is their, is their, the, the design of their feet. Okay. Um, the other thing is they're much more compact. Oh, interesting. Their, their legs are shorter. Huh. And they almost have a cartoon character appearance to look at them. They got these oh, great yeah. big beautiful eyes, and they got these great little smiles on their faces, and they walk around like little bulldogs. They just, you know, they're so cute. Oh, they are definitely because I remember seeing them at the show for the first time. You know, because and I had seen them before, but I'd never really, you know, got an up close and personal look at them. But mm -hmm. they totally reminded me of the um, the aliens from like that movie Communion. You know, whatever he calls the grave Oh, my gosh, whatever. yeah, they do have those big buggy eyes, those like those, huge, you know. Mm -hmm. and they're just, they're, it's just solid black. There's like, it's just, it's a black marble stuck in a gecko head. And it's just, you got it, yeah. It's so cool looking, though. And now it looks no, so see, soft. I'm scared to touch the little things. They're, they're actually pretty, they're pretty little rhino-skinned, you know, things. They're, they're I know, pretty... that's you said at the show. I was like, are you really? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Those things are amazing. So, now, yeah. Um, as far as captive care of the um, Levis Levis, what are we looking at for them as far as tank size and all that kind well, of Well, okay, the Levis Levis are, are, are solitary creatures. Um, they oh, do so not grouping. Okay. No, no, they do, they do much better uh, when housed individually. Even um, the I house, Yeah, all of them. Really? Each, so they each just and every one. They don't with anybody. <laughs> okay. Well, they're extremely private. Oh. And they are easily stressed. Their stress uh, level, uh, you know, their stress tolerance is not as high as uh, as the milli. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't want to say they're antisocial, but it kind of might seem that way because these guys spend a lot of time hiding. Oh, interesting. And they like very tightly enclosed areas to hide. Oh, in. okay. And if they can't have one, they will create one. And by digging really? elaborate tunnels with chambers, okay, uh, where they all spend a <laughs> captivity. Well, it's funny. The first, the first one, the first Levis I ever got as a pet. Uh, I still have him, of course, but um, I set him up in a ten-gallon short tank, just a, one of those little short tanks, yeah. and I tried to make it look really cool. Uh huh. And I, I, you know, I piled up a whole bunch of sand on one side of it, and on the cooler side, and kept that damp uh, so that the sand would compact. Okay. And I never saw the guy. Huh. He, he, sometimes I would have to look underneath or around the sides of the tank, and sure enough, there would be this chamber dug there, and I'd look through there and see these great big black eyes peering out <laughs> at me. He's like, Hi. <laughs> And at first, it kind of freaked me out because I'd lift the hides and he wouldn't be there. Oh yeah, no kidding. And then I'd have to dig him out, which would make him mad. And then he would, you know, once I packed it all back down again, he would be busy again all night long digging no um, to recreate his little tunnels. And, and now I keep now I keep them all in, um, you know, sixteen quart tubs. Okay. In rack systems. Now they mm -hmm. they can tolerate. A higher heat than the mill I do, so I do keep the um, 
the back end uh, where I have the heat cable running in the um, uh, you know shelves in the back of the shelves for my rack systems mm-hmm. at about a surface temperature of about ninety to ninety two degrees. Okay. Now I don't keep a whole lot of sand back there. These guys go on pure sand. And again, I use the um, ultra-fine grade um, non-silica sand. Um, I think there's Jurassic sand, there's Repti sand. Uh, comes in nice colors, so if you want something that looks, you know, looks pretty as a display type, um, you know, vivarium, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. And then from now, just visualize you're looking at the tub, and it's elongated. And at the back of the tub, which is where the heat source is, I have about a half inch of sand. Okay. And I keep a low, um, a plastic hide, uh, a low-profile plastic hide, because they actually like, you know, more enclosed environments. Mm-hmm. Now, the sand then will graduate from about that half inch up to as much as uh, three inches Wow. Okay. towards the front of the tub, which is where it's, where it's cool. Where it's cooler side, okay. Right. And I do keep that misted. Um, you know, several times a week, not to where it's wet, but to where it's damp enough. Uh, and I actually take the palm of my hand and, and press it down to make it really, really firmly packed. So you're looking at a so half inch like graduate, a, almost like beach sand, like we were building a sandcastle kind of. But you without, got it. But without putting the shapes on it, you're going to let them. You got it. it. Okay. Yeah, that's about the consistency it needs to be. You don't want it to be saturated. Um, right. You just want it to be damp enough to where it'll hold together. Okay. Um, that's a perfect example. Is you know sitting at the beach making sandcastles. Right. Right. Um, and these guys will burrow holes. And they'll dig a tunnel, and they'll make little chambers, and I think that they, they hang out in there probably about 50% of the time. And, of course, when they need to be warm, they'll retreat back to their uh, artificial hide okay. um, over the heat source. Huh. Now, I've never seen um, a Levis drink out of a uh, water bowl. Um, I have utilized water bowls, and with their incessant digging, it just seems to get buried or filled up with sand. Sand. So um, I think that they absorb a lot of the moisture from that moist, deep end of of their sand um, through their skin. Now, they will lick droplets of water off of the walls of the the tubs. I've seen them do that. Okay. But um, uh, I do know that they have their skin can be very sensitive, and if there is if the humidity conditions are a little too high, they can actually get uh, fungal or bacterial infections in their feet and legs. Oh wow! Okay. So there, there is. Uh, so give I've us gotten an into idea of like a, a humidity humidity gradient, if you will. I'll give you an idea. Yeah, like is it eighty percent humidity, seventy percent, sixty percent? You know, that's a good question. Um, I've never really actually measured before. No, I've never stuck a hygrometer in there or anything. I I, I usually do this. The it's a very scientific method, (laughs) (laughs) and And it it, it works bitching. Oh yeah, it's a very scientific (laughs) method. I squish it in my hand, and if it holds together, it's it's right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's the same way for uh, incubation mediums. You got it. I used to love that crap. Yeah. You know, when I was first starting out. You know, and in trying to incubate corn snake eggs, you're like, well, yeah, you doofus. You just, you know, you pour in this much water with this much equal vermiculite. 
you squeeze it. If water comes out, it's too wet. If water doesn't come out, it's too dry. I'm like, exactly. Well, what the hell? <laughs> well, of course, we've got that down to a science now. We know what oh. ratios to use. Oh. But you're right. Back in those days, we did the same thing. So essentially, a little bit of the sand is always going to stick to your your hand. But right. if it if it's really really sticky in your hand, it's too wet. Right. If it's like paste, it, or and if it crumbles and falls out of your hand, it's not wet enough. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> So essentially, you want it to be able to um, hold its shape um, without falling apart. Well, yeah, and, okay. and and the way I test it is, of course, I mist it down, and you know sometimes I do it in layers or let it soak down and whatnot, and I'll stick my pinky finger way down into it. Oh, okay. Into this hill, so yeah. to speak, and pull my finger out, and if it holds its shape, you're good. Yeah, you're good. Oh, see, that works way better than that incubation medium technique. That yeah. I would, you know. Yeah. I told you it was very scientific. See, there you go. That's what I like. And, uh, yeah, and then uh, I think that they actually can do well with a drying out period, too. So I don't know that it's a, you know, I don't keep them at a constant, constantly at that moisture level. Oh, okay. Um, I will let it dry out sometimes to the point to where it'll start, you know, these little caves will start collapsing. And, of course, they're little diggers, and they will, you know, the more they dig out, um, you know that sand that gets digged out, dug out. Excuse me, is uh, dries out quicker. So right, right, okay. Now, same dietary uh, needs for these guys, or yeah, yeah. Now my oh my god, no, no. They uh, well, of course, if it's Godzilla. the right size, uh, you don't, <laughs> you wouldn't want to put a full-grown adult dubia roach <laughs> in there. But they they go nuts over the dubia. Nice. Oh, they just, and a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take a pair of tweezers and, of course, I'll dust the dubia with the, you know, and then I'll lay it on its back right in front of the door of their hide. Oh, no. So it's wiggling and it's trying to right itself. And within a few seconds, you hear, it it gets snagged like nothing, you know. Okay. Um, I do have several females that will um, eat uh, superworms. Really? Um, if they're offered on tongs. Wow. I just and they see just that get real excited over those. Eating a superworm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, but but I would say that my main diet for for the for all my uh, nephurus or, or knobtail species is crickets. Oh, okay. But I do like to, and you now, know, I think. What kind of schedule do you have for feeding, as far as that's concerned? Because I know a lot of people. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. What some people will tend to do is they'll buy, like, you know, 30 crickets and throw them in there all at once, you know, and figure, okay, that's good for the week. I don't recommend that for really any animal. (laughs) Yeah, I don't Um, either. (laughs) um, There are certain species you can get away with that. Um, The levis are certainly not candidates for that. Right. Um, They stress out terribly. Okay. If there's too many feeders put in at a time... In their in their enclosure. Oh, okay. Um, to the point to where they'll freak out. They they will just run around and and freak out. And they're, they're always and, doing and themselves because there's too much going on. Right. Okay. Right. It's it, they're very solitary, quiet, and and secretive little creatures. And when there's that much activity going on, they they their stress level goes through the roof. So, and I have talked to other people who've um, worked with these geckos um, much longer and more intensively, extensively, excuse me, than I have and said that they've actually lost geckos to heart attacks from stress. Wow, really? Yeah. 
Okay. So with the Levis, I think it's better to feed them fewer um, food items more often. Okay. Than dump a whole bunch in there and let them go. So I feed my adults about every two to three days, uh, and I give them three to four crickets at a time. Oh, okay. That's not bad at all. Um, they will eat one good-sized dubia, maybe two, depending on, you know, the size. And then right. um, I do like to interact with my animals, and, and it's very calming for me to um, maybe once a week or every week and a half or so, I will offer them superworms. Okay. And, uh, um, and then they'll eat one, possibly two superworms in one feeding. Wow. Okay. So they got but, a big old uh, gut on them then. <laughs> well, they got little round tummies. You yeah. certainly don't want to um, overfeed them because um, these guys don't do well. If they do regurge, um, yeah. it's very hard to, it's very, very difficult to rehab them from that. Right, right. Now, yeah. I'm sure, I'm almost positive you already told us, but um, I may have missed it for whatever reason. What was the temperature range again that you keep the Levis at? I keep the Levis in my regular uh racks that I keep my uh, leopard geckos and everything else. So we're looking at an ambient temperature of whatever your room is. We'll say between, you know, 70 to 76 degrees right. at the front. Okay. And then I do keep the surface of the warm side, which is in this case in tubs, is the back. And if you mm -hmm. keep them in tanks, it would be wherever the under tank heater is right. uh, at about a surface temperature of 90 to 92 degrees. Oh, okay. All right. So you're looking at about a 15-degree variation uh, right. for, for thermal regulation. Okay. Now, as far as, um, because they are, a, I don't want to say necessarily a nervous species, but they do, you know, like you said, become, can become stressed. Do you recommend handling all the nefarious species? Because, I mean, like, I, like we've talked about the shows, I know they've got, like, rhino skin and stuff like that, but they just look so damn delicate to me. I'm afraid I'm going to, like, each time I pet one, it's going to, like, break or something. They're actually little, really tough little creatures. Okay, cool. Um, in the time, in the amount of time that I've been working with them, I have never, knock on wood, uh, had one suffer a tail loss or anything like that ever. Wow. No, that's um, interesting. I didn't even think about asking that. Um, yes, they do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the uh, whatever that word is, the automatic tail dropping. I can never mm -hmm. say the word. Automatic. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and their their tail is more fan-shaped. Right. It's wider and more fan-shaped. So um, I'm not sure how Mother Nature designed them, if it was just to mimic a, a, another head, because their head is kind of yeah. squat and wide. Right, right. Um, and again, we're getting back to the little knob. I really don't know what the purpose of the knob is, but it's it's really a cool little feature on these little geckos. But, oh, it is, totally. But I, mine will tolerate handling, um, moderate handling. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, they're not the kind of gecko that you'd want to get out and, um, you know, have your with. kids carry around and, right. you know, that kind of thing. No, I don't think that they would deal with that very well. Well, not only that, they're a little bit high dollar for being to cruise around the... <laughs> At this <laughs> point, they're, the yeah, room. they're not... They're not easily replaced, exactly. Right. And and even if they weren't high dollar, there's just not that many of them uh, yeah, out there. Yeah, now how many breeders are actually working with Levis anyway? There's only two or three that I know of. 
Well, I would say probably a dozen or so that I know of here in the wow. United States. Uh, probably more than that on more of a hobby basis that they just like to keep them. Okay. But as far as breeding them, I would say about, about a half a dozen. Wow. Here yeah. in the States. Yeah, and just to give our listeners an overview, you know, everybody and their mother breeds leopard geckos. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're talking about like hundreds and, you know, probably, yeah, probably yeah. They're, thousands they're just, of people. Yes. You know, they're yeah. just like, you know. They're like dogs now. You know, everybody. Yeah. Ready, you know? Well, they are so mainstream right now that, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, and there's so much information out there on leopard geckos right now that there's no reason in the world that every household shouldn't have just a, have a leopard gecko. You yeah, know, it's exactly. Kind of a, now, the knobtails is a little bit different because they're much rarer. Right. Um, and hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the de- the demand is high and their price is high. Although it has, you know, come down a little bit more. Um, and there's just not that much captive information out there, right, uh, right. for people. And I think that kind of discourages people sometimes that they think that that it's this elusive thing and yeah, it's so um, impossible to take care of. And yeah, and, and that's yeah. not true. Yeah. I, I will say when I first started working with um, uh, any Australian species, it was the Levis. Uh-huh. And it was a challenge even for me, who'd, who'd been a you know a seasoned you know uh, gecko keeper for more than ten years. Oh, okay. And it was a challenge for me, and I got discouraged a couple of times, and I did lose I did lose some geckos, and um, you know, and I don't take that very lightly when I lose a gecko. It's yeah. not just like oh damn, I lost a gecko. It, I really take that to heart, and I, f- I I just felt like I'm just not doing them justice, and I found that. Um, I found, and maybe this is just imagined, but I found that a lot of the uh, other breeders that were out there working with them were not very open and willing to share information. Yeah, no, that I've, that makes sense. Now, I never really understood if it was because they felt, you know, maybe they felt threatened or they wanted exclusivity, you know, or... I think it's just, you know, a lot of people... Or they are... just didn't know. I think I think it's a mixture of both. Either they yeah. don't know, or they're afraid you're going to steal their breeding secrets and you know put them out of business. Or but yeah, I mean, I, I I did struggle with trying to figure that out, and then I just said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take every ounce of information and and, and interrogate as many people as I can. And exactly. if they're not going to be cooperative, then they're not. And if they want to share and they they want to realize that. Um, you know, that I'm not looking for anything um, that's going to be real lucrative business-wise. Right. Uh, as much as I just am fascinated and love these creatures and, right. and really enjoy them, and I want to do right by the animals that, that I keep. Yeah, so. definitely. And yeah. then, sure enough, I mean, you know, doors started opening, and people yeah. became a little more willing to share information. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, as far as the rough uh, knob-tailed geckos are concerned, that's... Uh, Nefaris what? Well, there's two two main rough. Well, actually, there's three, but there's two main ones that that uh, uh, and and uh, well, actually, there's three main ones. Only two two main ones here in the United States. Okay. Uh, the first being the Nefaris amia or amii. However, it, it's, I I always struggle with Latin terms, but yeah. um, they are the true rough knobtail. Okay. They're very large, okay. and they literally have no tail whatsoever. None. Just that little knob. <laughs> yeah, it's a little button on the end of their butt. Right, right. Yeah. I don't keep those. Um, 
And that's just a personal choice of mine. It doesn't mean that I don't think that they're magnificent creatures, which they are. Yeah. And then the other more common uh, is the uh, Nephurus wheelerii. Uh, in this case, it's the wheelerii cinctus. There's, uh, there's three different subspecies. But the most, most prominent one that you'll find in Europe and, in, and is here in the United States is the wheelerii. Okay. And that is called the banded rough knobtail. That's their common okay. name. Wow, mm-hmm. banded rough knobtail. Okay. Right, but most people refer to them as Amy A. Levis, you know, Wheelerai, r- you know, Millai. Millai, right. Right, right. Okay. So now take us through, like, you know, captive enclosure for, you know, the Wheelerai. What, what are we looking at? Well, it's, it's, it's actually quite different um, in, the, in the sense that the Wheelerai do not have this need to, although they do dig, and I'll explain that in a second, they don't, uh, you know, they don't, you know, create these elaborate tunnels and chambers under uh, subterranean, you know, tunnels and chambers. Mm-hmm. They tend to lay on the warmest side and kick sand up over their backs. You, you will hardly ever see a photograph or see a wheelerai that doesn't have like a streak of sand down its back. It's the funniest thing. It's almost like they wallow, and then they they kick the sand up over their backs. Now, I don't know if this is because of a camouflage or if it's a way that they, um, you know, like maybe, you know, well, you know how when pigs wallow, it's because they, you yeah, know, they don't. Yeah, bugs off. Well, and, and not only that, pigs don't, um, they don't perspire. So they don't there's, sweat, yeah. Yeah, so I don't really know why they do that. So for these guys, I don't keep the graduated um, level, uh, you know, from, from, you know, hot to warm or to cool side uh, of sand. I do keep them on the same substrate. The uh, non-silica, ultra-fine grade sand. Right. And um, their heating requirements are exactly the same, and I do keep them individually. Oh, okay. So no uh, again, okay. in um, uh, 16-quart tubs in my racks. Mm-hmm. But instead, I keep about an inch and a half, an inch to an inch and a half of sand evenly distributed over the bottom of their tub. Oh, interesting. And they do seem to hang out on the warm side. And I do keep a hide for them, very similar to the, the hide that I keep for the, uh, for the uh, Levis. Low and narrow, gotcha. Yeah, kind of low and narrow, okay. um, and um, I I missed their enclosure on the cool side, on the three walls, the, the the cool wall, and then about half of the adjacent you know walls. Uh, about three times a week, I missed it until I see the edges, you know, where the sand comes up, um, starting to collect okay. moisture. Right. They will come out and lap water droplets. Okay. It's just a blast to watch them. I mean, oh, I it, it's, they just come out and they'll just, their tongue just, you know, they just lick and lick and lick and lick and lick and then move around and lick and lick and, and they'll climb up and lick the top <laughs> ones and, and stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch. Cool. So they won't they so, don't drink standing water then? Huh? No. Okay. No. No, there's no, I, I've never had to do that. And uh, as long as you don't let them dehydrate... Right. Uh, again, you don't want to keep that cool side too so moist that it, that it you know 
uh, might create a, you know, a, a problem with fungus or bacteria. Right. But about three times a week, I get in there and, and of course, I use a gar- one of those garden sprayers, you know, those kind you pump up that oh, has yeah, a nozzle cool. on it and stuff. And, and I'll spray down the cool end walls only. Okay. Um, <clears throat> until it starts dribbling down and I'll see the sand starting to get wet. And they'll come, yeah, and then they're, they're, all the condensation and moisture forms on the walls, they'll just come out and lick and lick and lick and lick. Wow. Now, they'll, they, their feeding requirements are, are exactly the same. I feed them, um, you know, crickets, dubia. Um, I do have a couple that will, uh, that really like the, the superworms and others just turn their nose up at it. So. Oh, okay. But um, these guys can tolerate... Um, more or a larger amount or, or no, a larger number mm-hmm. of feeders at a time. They don't seem to be as easily stressed uh, as the levis do. Oh, okay. So I can feed them less often and, you know, uh, maybe a, a little higher quantity at a time. Right, right. But I certainly don't recommend taking, you know, 20 crickets and dumping them in there and saying it's good for any species. Right, yeah, that's definitely not okay with me either. But these guys don't seem to be as nervous, or, or I wouldn't say nervous, or as uh, their High stress strong. level is, yeah. Okay. And same for handling, they can handle, uh, you know, regular... They seem to, they seem to handle, they're, they're a little, they're, their demeanor is a little less, um, I don't want to say nervous. Right. Uh, they're a little calmer in demeanor. Okay. Uh, when you do pick them up, they will protest vocally, and it's like a it's a growling, gur- gargling sound that they'll make. Oh, nice. But I've never seen any real aggressive, um, I've never been bitten or even threatened to be bitten by, by a, a wheel or eye. Oh, very cool. So, you know, I, 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 I don't handle them just for fun. Right. But every time they're fed or cleaned or whatever, uh, and at least three times a week, I pull their whole entire tub out, uh, clean their feces out, and um, make sure that their uh, that their front side, you know, the cool side is misted, mm-hmm. and they get handled every time. So okay. uh, I do that, and they seem they tolerate it just fine. Right, right. Now, how long? Uh, what's the lifespan on these on the nefarious species, generally speaking? I mean, of course, That's a good question, be, you know, John. Um, have we even figured that out yet? or? <laughs> I I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not they're bred. Oh, really? I, I honestly think, especially for females of all three species uh-huh. that, uh, that I work with, especially for females, um, you know, I think that it just shaves um, li- uh, years off of their lifespan. Wow, interesting. Um, my oldest Levis is five. Okay. Uh, and she's, she still has produced some eggs for me. Okay. And she's doing quite well. Good deal. Uh, my oldest Wheelerai is about three and a half, almost four, doing very well. Uh, my Milli, the original, the original ones that I got were already adults when I got them, and it was, I really wasn't sure how old they were. Um, I still have the males. Okay. I have lost three of the females. Oh, okay. And it was shortly after they had laid a clutch of eggs, within a matter of days, they just, I just, 
you know, I lost them. They were they were just gone. Oh, okay. So I would say I would say five to eight years, and that may be uh, conservative. Hmm. But that's just been my experience because that's how long I've been working. With right, them. right. No, I hear you. Yeah. Okay. So they don't certainly don't have the longevity um, of say you know like the leopard geckos and the fat tail geckos. Right, right. Uh, do. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> but this is definitely a species uh, recommended for people in an apartment setting because you know I mean. It's a 10-gallon enclosure, folks. I mean, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you get a really, I mean, if you want to get something out of the norm, but, you know, are afraid to, you know, go out and, you know, because everybody's got blizzard lizards and everybody's got, you know, it's like sure. all the leopard geckos and all the fat tails been there sure. done that. And know, the crested geckos, too. Of course, they, they know, require a little more room because they are arboreal species. But you know, these are, these are we're looking at terrestrial species, and um, both uh, both the rough and smooth knobtail species don't, I don't think they, they don't need a whole lot of space. Yeah. Uh, because they spend the majority of their time, especially the levis, um, you know, in these little chambers, these elaborate, you know, subterranean chambers that they, they, you know, if you want a gecko that's out all the time that you can interact with and mm-hmm. whatnot, uh, I wouldn't recommend a nefarious levis. Right. Um, but for somebody who might have eclectic tastes as a keeper or right. a hobbyist, yeah, I that. think they are just very worthwhile working with, and I get a tremendous amount of gratification working with them. Well, the thing with me was, you know, when people um, came out in Reptiles magazines saying, you know, that, oh, crested geckos are going to take over the world for leopard geckos and blah, 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 it's like, dude, they're not even that good looking. I'm sorry, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm like... Oh, you might have some people thumping on you for that. I think they're... I think they're really cute. Um, no, they're cool I, geckos. Don't get me I wrong. I would probably, yeah, I'd probably keep them except for my space requirements. And and quite frankly, I have everything limited to one, you know, one facility room, right. if you will. And um, I can't have a whole lot of diverse species in there that have different uh, temperature and humidity requirements. Well, the thing was with me for the crested geckos, and the reason I never got into them is because it's like, dude, I have to feed this thing baby food. Yeah, and all, I mean, gee, many Christmas. This is ridiculous. I mean, I don't. Well, it's a little easier than that. Rapashi has some great formulas out now that all you do is mix with water, put them in a little cup, and stick it in there, and then they. Well, yeah, but you, that, know, you know, I'm talking about like ten, twelve years ago when I, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. When oh, I yeah. got into this stuff, you know. Right. And you know, within I don't know three or four years after I got into the you know uh, her pediculture deal, everybody started screaming about these crested geckos, and I'm like, dude, that's too much damn work. I've got a job, I've got, you know, I've got a family, I don't have time to be feeding this thing baby food. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, but I you know, you're, uh, and I kind of feel that way too. However, on the flip side of that, John, some people would much rather take some powder, mix it with water, put it in a little, in a little, you know, portion cup and stick it in there rather than deal with bugs. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's I think it's just a matter of personal choice is true, all it is. true. But I'd much rather have a uh, nefarious species than I would a crested. Well, I would too, and that's why I keep them. But um, <laughs> that's why you keep them. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I think that they are just 
really, really interesting little creatures. Now, here's something <clears throat> I want to ask you. As far as the, the nefarious species specifically, is there any morphs that anybody's working on, or has anybody even gotten that far as far as you know, yes. changing color? Really? Yes. Wow. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about the Levis wow. at this point. Sweet. Um, <laughs> there, there have been, there are documented albinos. Really? Right. Now, as far as how robust they are or how well they have, you know, managed adapted, to keep yeah. and adapted, it's still kind of a little bit of a whispering kind of a thing. Okay. But there are, uh, I know of two breeders right now, and, one, and, and two in the United States, and, and one that I'm aware of in Europe that does have an albino species, uh, an albino morph, we'll say, or right. a mutation, <clears throat> Of the uh, of the Nephrus levis levis. Wow. They are amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. They are. Uh, they're just. Their coloration is just uh, just spectacular. And of course, instead of having these great big, you know, marble black eyes, they're they're red. Oh. And um, I don't know if I'd want one of those. That might scare me more than the black ones do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if, if I was if I was more if I was a real I, I don't know if I was I I would if, if if I had let's say if money was no object yeah ex oh yeah I'd be on it in a heartbeat I'd have them but I still think that the, I know of two people that are working with them I'm not going to uh -huh. name any names because right. it's still they're they're still trying to work with them and create yeah, it's heads still, it's and, still an ongoing and, project sure no, exactly exactly and I have the utmost but congratulations respect to whoever they are because that's absolutely. awesome absolutely. And 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 it, and it popped out as a random morph, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Now with the Wheeler Eye, mm -hmm. um, something interesting about the Wheeler Eye. Let me let me kind of touch on that a second. It's yes, just an sure. observation. Uh, during the daytime, they have like anywhere from a pinkish salmon color all the way up to almost a brick red coloration, with dark black or dark brown or brown bands. Right. Uh, I have two that are aberrant patterned. In other words, the bands, they don't have bands. They kind of got like a funky shape to them. Well, it's like the bands are broken up into vertical lines. It's very interesting. Really? Uh-huh. And they're, okay. not, they're not as prolific uh, as some of the other knobtail species are. So, you know, producing numbers of them at this point is, you know, Still a dream. Still a process. Okay. Yeah, it's a process. I shouldn't say a dream. It's it's a process, right? right. Okay. But at nighttime, they turn completely monochromatic, black and white. And it's only those two that you were working with that do that. Those the the the, the uh, wheeler eye, the the rough banded rough knobtail, the wheeler eye. Okay, so all the wheeler eye do this. All the wheeler eye do that. They go monochromatic. And to me, it just since they're nocturnal. Um, it makes thing. sense that they would turn black and white at yeah. nighttime. Sure. And during the day, their their skin or their their pigment changes to the color of the Australian sand. Desert, right? Right, which is red and orange. Wow. So I think this is just fascinating. So I think that's fascinating. So they have. And correct me if I'm wrong, chromatophores that are changing? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Uh -huh. 
Mm-hmm. See, now I really now, want one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, the Levis, uh, at night, their colors tend to be a little bit more vivid, but it's, it's, it's negligible. Huh. Now, now, getting back to the color morphs, um, I yeah. am, am going to give myself a little plug here in the sense that I have, uh, I have discovered three and possibly four distinct uh, phases, color phases. Really? Yes. Now, um, when I first hatched out, the, uh, when I first hatched out, I call them ultralights. Okay. Light phase, the normal phase, which are, uh, you know, variations of, of warm browns and kind of, a, you know, um, golden colors and blacks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then a dark, the dark face, which are almost all black. Wow. It's, they're really fast. They're just beautiful. Now, when I first hatched out these first ultralight babies, mm-hmm. and I saw them, I pulled them out of the incubator, I almost fell on my, I f- literally almost fell over. Wow. Because I honestly thought I had an amel. Oh, yeah. I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got an amel here. And I may still. Um, one of the things that I need to do is figure out how I can get their skin tested and probably, you know, um, you know, have them tested for the absence or um, presence of tyrosinase. Okay. Um, but they are not albinos because their eyes are solid black. But they are so pale and so um, they have they have very little, if any, um, melanin. melanin right. in their skin. They're spectacular, and I have a huge demand um, for these geckos, and um, I don't have enough, uh, I, I, I don't work with uh, enough quantity of these guys to to really um, do a lot of extensive, um, you know, testing. Um, I, I, yeah. have, I have discovered that it is not, uh, I don't think that it is a, it is not a recessive trait, which tells me that it's not a true amelanistic. Oh, okay. It, it's, uh, but I'm trying to get interest up, not only in these guys as pets, because I just think they're just, I don't see any reason why the nephurus milli or the thick tail or barking gecko shouldn't be a mainstream animal. They are that robust. They're very prolific breeders. They are tame. They are interesting. They're out all the time. They're easy to take care of. Yeah. yeah. Um, so hopefully we can get more interest. But I have... Uh, I have set up pairs and trios of light and ultralight phases uh, and several other breeders in Europe and here in the United States have purchased them from me Okay. Um, so that we can put our heads together and, and try to genetically, you know, we, the only reason, way you can really get good data, genetic data is, you know, if you've got, it, well, that, especially that, because I don't want the, the gene pool to be so... Muddled. You know, shallow that right. we're not creating, you know, uh, genetically diverse and robust animals. But, but you do have to have a quantity. You, you, you know, for yeah. statistical analysis, you got to have the numbers. Yeah, you got to have more than two. Exactly. <laughs> so, in the next few years, I'm very excited to say that there's some, you know, there's some breeders out there, um, right, and, right. and and two especially in Europe that I'm. Uh, that I enjoy uh, talking to and working with, that I have a lot of respect for, 
Awesome. And hopefully we can put our heads together and understand how this, how these fa- color phases, I'm going to call them phases at this point, sure. uh, work, and then hopefully do uh, offspring exchanges Yeah. so that go. we can keep the bloodline. So like outcrossing. Mm-hmm, to, to, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, so we don't the inbreed them. Right, mm-hmm. okay. So, yeah, nice. and um, um, I've, I've had a couple of, I've, I took a, I had a great photo of a dark, a dark phase, uh, a normal phase, and one of what I call an ultralight phase, millite, stacked one on top of each other. Oh, very cool. And if, if listeners want to go over and check it out on the Golden Gate Gecko's uh, Facebook page. Oh, okay, it's on the Facebook it page. Isn't, it is a public uh, page. You don't need to, you know, be a member or a friend or anything like right, that. You can right. you can click like if you if you want, but you you can go in and look at my photo albums, and I have, uh, it's called Millai Pileup, and it's a okay. very, very good um, uh, visual on on what I'm talking about as, as far as the color phases go. Right, okay. Now, I, 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 I know that it's genetic. However... Uh-huh. Just recently, I've talked to somebody uh, in in um, uh, uh, in Australia who does a lot of field research, and he says actually it's not that uncommon uh, to see this. If you look at their distribution map, which is mostly along central southern um, you know Australia, and then there's a big dip that goes upward in the middle. He he seems to feel that these nephura species um, that are that are farther south, which is cooler, mm-hmm. and probably more habitat, you know, more veg- vegetation and whatnot, gotcha. um, are going to be darker in color uh, for two reasons. First of all, because they blend in with the environment better, and second of all, that they absorb the you know the heat. The heat, yeah, okay. And the farther north and inland that you get in the continent. You get drier and and uh, hotter conditions okay. where the soil colors are different. So right. you're going to find those those um, color quote unquote phases more readily in those areas, and it does make sense. Yeah, definitely. It wow. does make sense. So I'm not claiming that I've come across any kind of new morph or anything right. like that. I'm no, just. I hear you. I'm just, uh, you know, giving credence to the differences in them, and and, um, and it's something that popped up in your collection, so you're, you know, absolutely, and I want to, yeah, I want to work with it, and I want to see, you know, if I can make more of them, which I do. Yeah, definitely. And um, but it does make sense that this is maybe not necessarily a a morph in and of itself. It's it's a a natural adaptation mm-hmm. of the animal's coloration um, based on their on their um, uh, indigenous area. Okay. Now, um, you did mention the Facebook page, and that's on Facebook, and it's just under Golden Gate Geckos? Yep, it's okay. Golden Gate Geckos. It's an open page, and, and um, I'd love to people to come and share and post and look and whatever. I do have, uh, and I do need to put up some more pictures, but I do have some, you know, photo galleries up there that's uh, oh. open for people to look at and whatnot. And, oh. uh, and I'm always open for suggestions, feedback, comments, and questions. Right, right. And now your website, which is goldengategeckos.com, correct, is also uh, free, basically free reign. You know, come get information. Sure, it's thing. just like any other website. You just go www.goldengategeckos.com, right? 
and um, I, uh, I have, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of redoing, you know, re revamping a website, so there's going to be pictures and sometimes not. Um, that's going to be a little process, but um, I do have available geckos. Uh, when I do have them available for sale, they are up on their individual um, pages, which would be under leopard geckos, fat tail geckos, banded geckos, and knobtail geckos. Right, right. And the other thing, too, that I do want to mention to our listeners, just in case they are not aware of it, the email address there, if you ask Marsha anything in regards to geckos, well, probably pretty much anything reptile-related, she will actually answer you. She won't ignore you. It's amazing. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I'm, I am pretty good. I am pretty good about answering emails. Oh, you're damn good about um, it. Trust me. Well... You know, I don't want to. I don't want people to think I don't do anything but live on the computer and answer emails. But well, I am pretty true. good about it. Um, I do ask that, that, that the majority of questions or you know whatever that come through the email. Um, I, uh, I, I I must say that my customers and potential customers get first uh, right. get first dibs on my time because right. I want them to be able to have uh, to make informed decisions. Exactly. Um, you know, nothing. Not that asking questions is wrong. No, it's no, just please no. be specific when you do ask the questions because it does uh, make the process that much faster for both of us. Well, everybody's time is valuable. Your right. time is valuable. My time, everybody's time is valuable. So if right. you can include as much information as possible in, as, in, a, in a concentrated form, I don't have time to sit and read, you know, 30 paragraphs. Right. But um, the other thing I want to do is steer people towards my care sheet. Yeah, I do have uh, care sheets for each of the species that I work with. Um, they're not a book. They're a couple pages, but they will cover most of the... General uh, mo Exactly. Yeah. Most of your answers are, you're going to find in my care sheets. Right. Um, and if I don't have an answer, I'm on, I'll say, I don't know. Um, many times I'll refer you to a veterinarian. Right. Um, but, um, and I share every ounce of information I learn. Uh, and I will try, uh, I do have a very good resource for finding um, herp vets in people's areas. Oh, okay, cool. Experienced keeper, and chances are if I haven't experienced it myself, I've certainly heard of it. Right, right. Uh, but I'll do the best that I can to answer everybody's questions, and, uh, and if I don't have an answer, I'll try to point you where you can find it. Exactly, exactly. All right, so that's... Uh I think that pretty much wraps up everything that we uh, could possibly want to know for starting out with the, the Nefura species. But once again, do check Marsha out at uh, www.goldengategoes.com. Uh, and as dates come up, uh, the dates will go up. So, right. Okay. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, you, as always at the shows, you bring, it seems like, the whole family. you got the leopards, the fat tails, the, even the coleonics was there. Oh, yeah. And especially the Nefuras, so... If you do uh, see Marsha Benning in the show, drop by her booth, chat her up, see how she's doing, check out the echoes, good stuff. Thanks, um, John. Hey, yeah. anytime. You know, I, I love doing shows because it's my chance to face to face to do face to face. And, and yeah, uh, exactly. I, I I may not always remember people's names, but I never forget a face, and um, I'm uh, you know I'm always willing to talk up the geckos and. And um, just just pass on whatever information I have and, and, and the love that I have for these animals. I hope it's infectious because I really I really want other people to get as much out of keeping these creatures as I do. 
Oh, it's definitely infectious girl. That's why I'm, I'm not bringing my wife to any more shows because if she sees one of the first species, I'm going to end up owning one. <laughs> 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 See, there's a method behind the madness. <laughs> one look at those little guys and you're ma- that's it. Oh you're yeah, all oh, over. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I know. And that's exactly all she does. is, you know, cuz she saw the photographs, unfortunately. She's like, "Oh, uh, why didn't you get one?" I'm like, "Um, well, you know, I didn't have, you know, <laughs> I didn't have my wallet. That was it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. My credit card's maxed out. That's exactly. why we don't have one. Oh, yeah. They, they are a joy. They are an absolute joy. They're not for everybody. I would not, you know, I would not consider, um, you know, the, the smooth and rough knobtail as a quote-unquote beginner gecko. But yeah. there's no reason in the world why uh, a, a nefarious milli or a thick tail or barking gecko can't become a mainstream gecko and part of everybody's uh, collection um, oh, yeah. and, and as a good introduction and springboard into into some of the other knobtail species. Yeah, into the Australian species as a whole, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there you have it. That was Marsha McGinnis from Golden Gate Geckos. Check her out. She's got all kinds of killer, killer geckos. Besides the Nopura species, she's got the Coleonics, the African Fat Tails, and some unbelievable uh, leopard gecko morphs as well. Uh, for, available for purchase through the website. Now, next week on uh, Reptile Living Room, the Herp Chat episodes, we sit down with Julie Bergman and talk to her about the Felsuma species. Uh, uh, if you do get a chance, please do drop by iTunes, give us some ratings, uh, let iTunes know that you do enjoy us, or uh, drop by the blog, reptileapartment.com, leave some comments there, or you can leave some comments on uh, reptilelivingroom.com as well. We do love hearing your feedback, we take it very personally. So drop us a comment. Let us know what you think of the shows. We will see you next time on Reptile Living Room Herp Chat.